Welcome to the Data Coffee Break Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Christian. If you are passionate about data like us, take a seat, relax, and join us to our coffee break where we discuss all things data. And remember, there are no filters, no PR. It's just a real life experience. So let's begin. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back. And first of all, thank you very much for all the feedback on this funny project we have on the side. Right, Christian? Yes, Mark. Yes, it's been really good and overwhelming. The good feedback that we've received. By how many hours did you reduce uh, your, your sleep? Maybe. Significantly, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> but it's good. Coffee, coffee keeps me up. Definitely. What do we have today as a guest? I'm super excited for today's guests because today we have someone that has been a professional in consultancy and product management for over 17 years. He has worked as a product specialist and technical product director in companies like Deloitte, Thomson Reuters, PwC, Agent Technologies, among others. He's also the founder of Tennis Betting 365. He holds a degree of the University of Manchester uh, in mathematics and management sciences. And as a product specialist, he has overseen the release of hundreds of features and influenced the direction of products in the natural language processing or NLP. And he's one of the most enthusiastic Bolognese bloggers. He's a, an amazing friend, a great colleague, and a proud father of two. And today we have Martin Staniforts. Welcome to the Data Coffee Break podcast. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the introduction. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Yeah, like I say, I'm a bit nervous. I don't know what's coming. So we will be gentle. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm quite interested about the, this uh, this blog yeah. about the the Bolognese. Can you explain why? Yeah. So it was a bit of a uh, lockdown indulgence. So uh, I, I work in product management, and you know the idea is to get to product market fit as quickly as possible, avoid waste, all of these kind of things. And then when you're at home, you just don't, you ignore all those principles. Yeah. And, uh, it was just something I started writing and I just couldn't stop. So a lot of interesting stories about the history of Bolognese and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to go and read it. And you have nice, uh, obviously, pictures of the dishes. I'm guessing you cooked yourself maybe, but also uh, nice art artworks. Is it yourself? No, I didn't do the artwork. I, I, I um, my partner Lauren did the artwork, but uh, I, I, I did the recipes and um, yeah, learned a lot about Italian cooking along the way. Amazing. We're going to put the the link on the description. Excellent. Take a segue to our you know conversation today about NLP. We're going to refer to NLP as natural language processing. Can you start it in your views? What is NLP and where is where do you see use it mostly? The particular field that I work in is defined by Gartner as um, intelligent document processing. That whole field can cover the uh, anything from OCR through to document extraction, so understanding mm -hmm. what's in a document and pulling out information, all the way through to search yep. and search engines. Um, that all comes in the same bucket. But yep. where we focus our efforts in my current um, employment is around the document extraction component of NLP, taking Uh, documents, particularly in the legal industry, the finance industry, and um, and insurance, and yep. pulling out information that, that might be relevant to our customers. I'm wondering if you actually know one of my friends who works at uh, Thomson Reuters, uh, is a lead designer, like he's been playing about doing NLP uh, projects 
on uh, also the uh, the legal industry and he was telling me about all the challenges he faced do, do you see like some industry being prominent in in that aspect yeah there's definitely um uh differences across industry so in in the legal industry you know you're you're there to you know, at some level replace a human doing some of that work or, or or liberate that human from doing some of that work and in the legal field they tend to be a bit more protective of that work you know they can charge for it for a start um and they, and it gives their legal teams good exposure to to problems that they might not ever um, otherwise face whereas if you go into finance yeah. and you're you know you may even be looking at the same documents but in mm-hmm. finance um it's much more about cost cutting mm-hmm. so it does uh, it does vary from from industry to industry and i i can i can it, what you're saying about your friend does resonate there are often quite a lot of problems that we face with sovereignty of this data so quite often these can be quite yeah. sensitive contracts and they have to be negotiated and before they're negotiated they can't be in the right. public domain so we have definitely come across challenges with with getting yeah. hold of data and and then and then also with mm. the um, uh, understanding of that data certainly that is quite interesting because those Industries are not necessarily the ones that are ahead of the curve when it comes to cutting edge technologies, right? Did you see a, a problem for them to adopt these technologies? Does it sound like too, I don't know, intimidating? It can be. It can be. I mean, I th- think some of the some of the challenges you'll get. Um, I mean, this is enterprise software, so just naturally it has uh, it has challenges as far as long long sales cycles, those kind of things. Yeah. But I think particularly prevalent is that at some level, someone has to agree to the risk that you're taking on. Now, you may be able to prove that the machine is more accurate than the human who's doing that work, but there's still this barrier that um, you know these are new yeah. concepts to a lot of the. Um, the people, particularly in, in risk right. departments of these big banks, and and that's something you also have to overcome. When when I say NLP, in my mind, I think about like the classic speaking to your uh, to your phone is going to to answer or asking maybe considering simply like what Google is starting to do as I'm starting now. It's been quite a few years, like interpreting your your questions. Like, is it the m- most common use cases we we see now for interpreting? sentences interpreting information shared and that's considered as nlp in all cases here um i think there is probably a very big bias towards the um yeah what, what you'll read about uh nlp in the press has a very big bias towards the cloud giants what they're doing with um you know massive massive data sets and, and oh, the like. right. quite often at the enterprise level uh you, you'll have the problem of small data so you know, there, there may not be much of this data around. Uh, you may have to make the most yeah. use of that data. You may also have problems with the cost of annotating that data. So, you know, we we have to work with lawyers and, and paralegals to understand, interpret that data and make a machine be able to do that as well. Mm. So it's a very far cry from, from some of the stuff that happens with, you know, phones being able to talk back to you. It's all in the same field, obviously, but we take a very different, studying okay. some very different problems in that field. It's, it's super interesting because, I mean, it's, it's one of the... First time that you might hear that small data yeah. is a problem now, you know, <laughs> just to be like big data. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, big data, yeah. Yeah, it's true. The data is so niche or could be so niche that it's a problem to get hold of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of these documents we deal with, there are a very finite number of them in the world, let alone in, in a single um, bank. So I'll give you an example, a collateralized loan obligation. There, there, there aren't many of them. Um, they tend to be extremely long so in the region of about 800 oh pages God. of information very oh legal wow. heavy text and and you know that's i think a lot of the nlp that you read about in the press maybe go and analyze 
a billion tweets. They're short sentences. There's a lot of them, and you can just churn through them and and and, and learn from the big data. Whereas uh, what we see, in, at least in my field, is quite uh, at the other end of the spectrum. This is looking at, uh, I'm guessing at the moment, in English, or do you handle when you want to mix different languages? You facing some clients who ask, okay, we need to to have the analysis done in Spanish, maybe in French, or maybe in a, a language which is not having the same roots. So it could be, let's say, in uh, in Japanese. It, is it? I'm guessing a, a weird challenge to to take into consideration here. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's something that we can we can offer. Um, typically, though, our demand is is very much in the um, European and uh, the sorry the US banking clients so, and uh, insurers particularly in, in London. So a lot of our problems tend to be in English, yeah. which is um, which is good because for every um, piece of clever machinery you apply to these documents, you have to have someone who can interpret it. So you need, mm. you would, if you were to go into these other languages, you know, you need to build up your capabilities in foreign language understanding from a human perspective before you can even get into the machine perspective. I, w- I would have said like a simple, like a Google Translate over every text after <laughs> yeah. using the... <laughs> The English interpretation is not sufficient yeah, here, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's an option. That, that is a good point of all of this, right? The human in the loop to understand jargon. How, how did you go and tackle those problems in your experience? Like, how, how do you do that? Is that just literally a person tagging? Yeah, so like I say, the, this problem of small data is that it tends to be uh, constrained by, uh, we call it, but we call it could be constrained by budget. You're constrained by some kind of budget, either the cost of annotation, so these lawyers can be expensive, the availability of documents, um, but it could also be the, the budget you have on computational resources and, um, and how long you have to train with those computational resources. Mm. I guess that's another one of the differences when you're talking about enterprise machine learning is that you, and, and particularly building products around that, because yeah. you're much more conscious to the, the budgetary constraints that you're under and, and working out what's the best thing you can do with your budget. Mm. So the, the example you give of uh, annotation, what, what you'll typically get is that someone is quite willing to give you an amount of time for, for annotating data. Mm. And they don't really care uh, how much annotation happens in that time. It's, it's a fixed mm. amount of time. Um, if you can, if you can yeah. double the amount of annotation of, uh, of, a, of a set of documents mm. in that time, then that's a good thing. So you can use NLP techniques that that can speed up the annotation process and um, and, and use that to leverage additional uh, annotations for that data. So and again, it's one of the things that we have to think about in a in a product management setting. Is NLP like really? Is it that a budget when it comes to comes to computation compared to other machine learning techniques or for such projects? It's. Um, I mean, it's getting. It's getting pretty big. The the constraint. The uh, the budget re- budgetary requirements you need. So, GPT three. Um, you may have heard this. Is one of the large language models. Okay. It's somewhere in the region of 170 billion uh, parameters required to to, okay. to to build that model. They can cost millions and millions of dollars to to train. So they start to become oh, wow. out of the realm of what you can do without some serious financial backing. And, and that's another of the things that, that plays into um, modern day NLP is just how big some of these models are getting to, to understand data. So any any written text that's out there on the Internet, you could use to train these models. And, and they're, they're learning simple tasks like um, I say simple tasks. They're learning tasks like, yeah. um, you know, what's the next word in this sequence of words? And what they're doing is they're building a general understanding of language. 
And what you can, what you can do is once they've been trained, someone's spent all that money on that training, you can then incorporate that as a foundation model in your own stack of, of NLP. And you may then just have to tweak the task that you're particularly interested in on the head of this uh, model. And then you can leverage all of that learning that's gone into um, mm. the foundation model. So it's um, a transfer learning approach to, to NLP. Fascinating. Power you can bring. Quick one. If you're enjoying this episode and our show, please make sure you follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Links on the description as per usual. Also, if you'd like to grow this community with us, think about sharing this episode with a friend or a colleague interested about all things data. Now, back to the episode. Have you seen this website called uh, crayon.ai who transform basically your text into a, an image? I have, yes. Yeah, that's um, a very interesting uh, area. It's known as multimodal NLP. How best to describe it? Let me give you a, uh, an example. If I was to say, hit me, baby, yeah. one more time, <laughs> what, do you th- what do you think? I would say... About a singer. Yes, singer. <laughs> yeah, you're, so you're, you're picturing Britney Spears, yeah. aren't you? You've already got the melody playing in your head. Yeah. Um, and it's not just about the text. So you live, oh. in a, you live in a multimodal world where you're, you're constantly learning from not just uh, text, speech, yep. what you see, but um, you know, it, can, it can be all uh, different senses. You know, there are approaches where you can take those multimodalities and combine them into a single model so that you're now um, learning not just from, for, for example, vision, but also from text at the same time. You know, you can do cool things with it. So you can do the, 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 the things that you've seen with crayon.ai. Where it's most relevant in my field is that a lot of uh, legal documents, uh, you know, it, predominantly it's about the stream of text, but there's a lot of visual elements in a lot of documents. And if you aren't incorporating that, that, that structure, you may be throwing away information when we look at multimodal NLP, we are likely to be looking at things like tables and um, forms and trying to understand and extract information um, with those two modes of information that exist within the, uh, within the document. MLOps, you know, as a strategy, how important it is to have that within, within the organization? So I can, I can talk quickly what MLOps is. MLOps is, um, is really about uh, the learnings that have happened up to this point about how to deliver machine learning project. And it really breaks down into three stages. First of all, uh, the, the reason that data scientists are called data scientists is because they follow a scientific uh, pattern. They experiment. Um, they find ways not to solve a problem before they find the right way to solve the problem. And throughout that process, mm-hmm. they're generating a lot of artifacts, so uh, models, data, and they need to understand how, uh, where, uh, they need re- reproducibility. So where where was that artifact at the given point so I can always get back to that? So there's that, that first phase of experimentation. They need to do that as efficiently as possible. Um, the second stage is then when they've got something that works, they then need to get that into a production system as quick as possible uh, with as, as few headaches as, um, can, as you can have. It's harder um, than it sounds, uh, particularly when you've got a you know leg- maybe a legacy system where you have to integrate uh, machine learning into that legacy system. Mm-hmm. And, then f- and then finally, you want to be able to, once you've got that model in a production environment that's being used by users, you want to be able to monitor it, make sure that it's still relevant, it's still, uh, if yeah. there's more data, available it's still learning and making sure that the data you trained that model with uh, is still relevant to the the data that's seen in the real world so that's mlops now why that's important particularly for a um, you know a machine learning company is the ability to work in that cycle 
really defines your ability to adapt and your ability to get to market, get your product out as quick as possible, get feedback, understand if um, you know the, the solution you propose is actually going to solve a problem. Yeah. And really, that's that's yeah. the the main benefits of MLOps is that we can have that end to end process very clearly yeah. managed, and 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 it can allow us to iterate quickly. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the best ways I've, I've seen, like someone puts why it's important MLOps. When you speak about the data to stay relevant, um, this can for us make reference obviously of as bias in, in the interpretation of the model, in the recommendation of the model, I guess. Um, in your case, you're really working with those very narrow um, and not... I don't want to say not too data driven, but uh, a very small set number of set of data. What do you do in in this case, like to stay relevant to avoid such biases yeah. um, in your in your models? Yeah, and that's um, that's one of the components of MLOps that's very important, obviously, in that domain where you have very relatively expensive annotation um, and you don't have much of it, and you build models. Uh, at that stage, but a lot of the um, value of that model is going to be realized over time. And the ability to incorporate remediations, for example, on, on your extractions and, and have them improve in the model is very important. And that's one of the components of MLOps is being able to manage that that cycle of, uh, you know, the additional data that comes in. It's it's relatively you know expensive to produce the the, the annotations in the first place, yeah. uh, but it's slightly slightly less um, expensive to remediate those annotations. So you want to make as much use of that annotation uh, remediation as um, as you possibly can to to build the best models that you can for your particular use case. Um, so, in your opinion, do you think that at some point you are going to be able, or we are going to be able to? Remove the human from the loop. I'm talking about the end products here. You bring a very uh, hot topic uh, yeah, question yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I mean, you think about uh, like Google, for example. Google has had the button. I'm feeling lucky. Okay. Yeah, Google's had oh, that yeah. feeling lucky button yeah. since since day one. Do you ever use it? I, I used it no. when it was there, you know, but yeah, rare, extremely rarely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not, not many people use it, even though you invariably enter your query yeah. and then go to the first page. You still want that human in the loop um, element mm-hmm. to your search in Google. And, and you know, we, we, we work with lawyers. Lawyers will review literally everything you put in front of them. So it, it feels unlikely that we'll ever get away from um, human in the loop. Obviously, there is always the topic like, is AI and machine learning going to replace human? Well, a lot of tools I can see out there or features implemented in, in tools are pretty much to help the users uh, to speed up their work, to be able to be more efficient, to be able to be more accurate rather than just simply replacing them. Yes. Okay. I can give you a good anecdote. So we've talked about MLOps and how important it is. And, and you know, naturally, you think about very technical domain, very, you know, engineers, data scientists. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that you often need to do in a platform, you need to you need to get non-technical people to have some skin in the game. So they need to annotate data. They need to um, apply different techniques, different models uh, to, to understand whether they, they need to score the models to see whether they're producing the, the outcome they want. And what you'll end up with is that mm. these uh, non-technical users 
are entering the world of MLOps without even realizing it. So, you know, they're having to maintain models, they're having to experiment, they're having to understand um, what the model's doing at any one point. And what you'll end up with is, in, in our okay. case, is that we, yeah. we, we get uh, lawyers requesting features of MLOps. And, you know, that's something that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. And, and it Can't always wait. makes me think that for every, uh, every time you might say, well, machine learning is going to take a job away, it's going to create another couple elsewhere. It just may be that you get lawyers who are now very sensitive to the mechanics of uh, MLOps. It's a new job, but it, um, it's going to be generated off the back of um, opportunity that ML brings. And, and so I'm always an optimist in these conversations. All right. If we think about our target audience, uh, solution architects, solution engineers, developers, do you have an advice for them, uh, for, for those that want to get into this area, in the area of machine learning, more in the hands-on or even in the consultancy? Do you have any advice for them on this? I'd say don't be intimidated by it. I think there is a there's a lot of PhDs in the field, and you know they <laughs> they work in the, they um, you know they they work amongst um, us mere mortals. But you know there's no reason why an engineer from an engineering background can't add value in these in 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 the field of machine learning. You still have the same problems with um, scalability with with you know, all of the things that. Uh, engineers can bring to the table so yeah certainly don't be intimidated by things and there is also uh, certainly a feeling of um, not being able to keep up the pace of change is so quick that you know there's, there's this feeling that you can quite easily get, get, get left behind again the phds in the field of, of yeah. uh, data science also have these same concerns so it's just one of those industries where things move so quick um, yeah. it's almost impossible to stay up uh, keep up with these things so yeah, the the advice would be um, just get stuck in really, and um, and learn as much as you can on the job, and create create a, a betting uh, betting website uh, <laughs> <laughs> on the top of it. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's the other thing about this is it, it's happened at the right time, hasn't it? The um, you know the software industry it used to be um, a lot of activity was happening. A long time ago in in Silicon Valley, and if you weren't in that club, you might not be learning at the same pace as those people. And then the Gang of Four released a book, and all of a sudden, um, you know, everyone can leverage that. Uh, whereas machine learning has come along at a time where there's fewer barriers to um, uh, learning, at least to a certain level, about about this field. And um, you know, the, the, there's no end of good content out there. So fantastic! That's really good. That's really interesting. As I, I think everyone listening to this episode is actually learning quite a lot from you, which is great. I, I'm conscious that we're getting to the, to the top of the hour. So as part of this podcast, for every guest that comes into the show, we have a feature question. The question is, what is the best professional advice that someone has given you? The, the reason for this is because we want to have a bank of advices for people so we can actually people can refer to them and have a community and everyone can learn and and take the advice from professionals like yourself that are every day working with data cool yeah and i i one that comes to mind um is uh be famous for something is um i can't even remember who gave that advice but the the idea is either within internally in your company or um hopefully externally outside of the company be be the person who is famous for for yeah. something, some knowledge you have, for some you know, some project you've delivered. Be famous for that thing, uh, and then and then exploit that fame. 
so that people will always come to you for that um, particular piece of advice or whatever it might be. Fantastic. Really good one. Anywhere we can follow you on social media if you are active? Yeah, so uh, LinkedIn is the best place to find me. I uh, drop the occasional nugget of uh, information about what our company is doing. Um, so, yeah, please follow along and reach out if you want to hear more. And we might share your website about the Bolognese uh, for, for pasta lovers around, around the area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. You want to talk about Bolognese, tennis or NLP? Once again, Martin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, thanks for this. It was real fun. I, um, I, I had a good time. Thank you so much for your time, Martin. Thank you for sharing all those insights. We hope that uh, everyone learned a lot about NLP today and uh, see you everyone on next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to this episode. This podcast represents our views and not the ones of our employers. Our mission at the Data Coffee Break podcast is to inform you and help you grow in this always changing data field. Follow us and get into the conversation with the community on our LinkedIn page and Instagram. See you next Tuesday. And until then, keep your data caffeinated.